I don't know about uh, you guys, but in my Bible, the kind of beginning uh, section, or the beginning, like the, the chapter title of this section, is Stewards of God's Grace. Stewards of God's Grace. And I think that that is a pretty good description of what Peter's trying to get across here. He's taken a bit of a, uh, of a detour, although he's still in the same vein of speaking about uh, Christian suffering and experiencing hardship and difficulties and oppression. He takes a bit of a, a moment to have a sidebar, a conversation with his hearers. If you recall... Uh, what Peter was initially communicating here was writing to encourage this group of Christians who were experiencing persecution and hardship and oppression. They were, uh, you know, being discouraged by the culture and society around them. Uh, and Peter's writing to encourage them, to remind them that if they suffer, they suffer with Christ because Jesus has suffered himself. And that if you are suffering, you are in good company. But as he writes this, he takes a detour to really speak to the heart of those who are considering giving up, who are considering giving in, who are considering making compromises so that they might be more well-liked by those who are persecuting them, that they might be, uh, you know, experience less hardship or less persecution or less uh, difficulty. Peter's really writing here to kind of give this word of encouragement, and I think it's an important word. I know myself that it's important to hear these things. Uh, you know, the majority of you know that I've been like on this kind of crazy, you know, eating uh, regimen, only consuming specific things and trying to achieve specific health goals. Uh, and over the, the time that I've been doing this, uh, when I go now to look at the different foods that I'm considering eating, I more see them as units of energy or uh, the ways that they will affect my body. And so I really have to begin to weigh out, you know, am I going to steward the energy that I have in my body, the, the way that my body is working? I'm considering how can I steward it most faithfully? And sometimes, you know, I can look over and say, that might not be the best use of my stewardship there. You know, that might, that might not be the best thing to put in. Uh, to achieve these goals that I'm working towards. But then there's sometimes where you see something real nice and you're like, oh, I might want to make that compromise. I might want to just let, let my guard down a little bit. You know, it's not going to really be that big of a deal. And you're tempted in that sort of sense uh, to give in there, but you need to, to be reminded of your goal, what you're seeking to achieve. And you think after a while, like, no, enough. I have already done that before. I've already tried that. And I know that it doesn't contribute to the proper stewardship of my body. It doesn't contribute to uh, the proper way that my body is designed to work. And so I have to say no to that. Not because it's not appealing. Uh, not because, you know, it's uh, just plain bad. But something that, that there was a time and place for that. And uh, I've lived that life before. And now... I've moved on. And so here, Peter's trying to do something similar. He's trying to give us this mindset of stewardship over God's grace in our lives. That he has given us, he's entrusted us with something. This gracious inheritance, this gracious redemption that did not belong to us because we are entitled, but belongs to us because it is the free gift of God. 
And he sought to give us this, uh, this purpose of stewarding well over it so that we might honor God most faithfully in our lives. That we might live in such a way that brings God glory. And so he comes now to make his point, and, and he goes on this uh, little theological sidebar here to strengthen us and really to put us in the mindset that we need to buckle down. We need to, to be prepared to count the cost for uh, the temptations that will come that we are offered. And so he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 saying this, Since, therefore... Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, as Peter opens up this section, he says this. Because of what Christ has accomplished, because Jesus has suffered, because Christ has been victorious over Satan, over sin, over death, because he has conquered the hostile uh, powers of the enemy. You know, uh, in the previous section, we just talked about how he triumphed and, and proclaimed the gospel victoriously over those evil forces that were opposing him, showing that he is truly the victor. He is overcome by his death and by his resurrection. Now, Peter says, because Christ has accomplished these things, because he has done this, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. With the same way of thinking, of victory. This mindset of going out into battle. You see, when he says here that we ought to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, uh, we can really begin to draw the parallels between what Paul says in the great Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in yourself which was in Christ Jesus. That uh, though he was God, he humbled himself, coming in the likeness of man, coming in the, the form of sinful flesh, that he might live this life on our behalf, that he might suffer willingly, obediently to the Father, paying a price that we could not pay. You see, Christ came intending to honor God through his suffering. He came intending to not just experience suffering and have no point, but he came wanting to make sure that that suffering produced glory for God. And here, Peter says, Christians, you ought to have that same mindset. You ought to have it so uh, sharp in your mind that when you're experiencing hardships and difficulties, when you're experiencing suffering and opposition, when you're experiencing persecution, that you're not thinking, oh, woe is me. You're thinking, God will be glorified through this. God must be glorified in my life through suffering. And so therefore, he says that we are to arm ourselves with this intention intentionality in our suffering. When he writes this, uh, he uses this term, arm yourselves. Right? What that really speaks to is uh, this kind of militaristic uh, you know, note 
He's saying here that you're going into battle and that you're going to experience the unexpected. And so you have to prepare for this scenario. Arm yourselves. Be prepared. Take up the weapons that you need to defeat the enemy. That you need to defeat the condemnation that your own heart will bring upon you. Be prepared. Be like soldiers preparing for battle. I mean, this isn't new language. Uh, this is language that is used all throughout the, the New Testament. That we ought to put on the armor of God. That we ought to uh, arm ourselves and prepare ourselves for battle. Uh, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, compares the Christian to a soldier. Someone who is readying themselves for battle. And so we have to have this discipline and determination to live out the Christian life, particularly when you're going to suffer because that's when you start to think, I'm going to give up. Uh, maybe it's time to quit. Maybe it's time, time to stop. It requires discipline. Now he reminds us here, Christ has suffered in the flesh. We ought to arm ourselves with this way of thinking and then he says this, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's kind of a confusing sort of statement there that he makes because it's like, okay, if you're experiencing suffering like you don't sin, is that what he's getting at here? Uh, I, some people can take it to mean that, but here's what really what Paul, or what, excuse me, what Peter's getting at here. He says, if you have this intention, if you have this mind of Christ preparing yourself for suffering. What you're saying there in that process of preparation and the process of sanctification, of deciding, I'm going to experience hardship in my life, I'm going to experience difficulty in my life, but I'm going to suffer well. You're showing, you're demonstrating through that attitude, through that heart motive, that you have decided to be done with sin, that you are wholly committed to the Lordship of Christ. It's a commitment that you're making in your heart that then manifests itself outwardly in your preparation, your intention to suffer. And so Peter says, if you've committed uh, yourself previously to a life of sin and you've come out of that and you've met Christ and you are in a new relationship with him and you're experiencing these hardships and difficulties, you've really decided that you're going to be done with that old life. You're done. And you're looking now, you're turning the page. You've ceased from sin. You're not looking to participate that in that anymore. And now you're looking to a new life. Now, as we said, Peter is saying these things because he wants us to know that there is a point, a hope, continuing it's not time to give up he's like you've already you're already done with that so get your mind right focus you've already ceased from sin now the charge that peter brings is that you've ceased from sin but now he reminds us about what we should do and what we should not do he gives us both a positive and a negative something we should commit to and something we should continue omitting from our lives. He goes on in verse 2 and he says this, 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says, you're going to continue to live upon this earth. And as you continue to live upon this earth, however much time that you have, you no longer live for human passions. Something that we should uh, refrain from doing. Something that we should stop doing. We no longer live for human passions. Now, as he, as he, he writes this, it's easy for us to pass over here, but he, he makes a specific point just in his, his use of language. No longer for human passions. Doesn't that really encompass the things that pull at our heart? Passions, plural. There are many things that we begin to be interested in that draw our attention, that we start to chase after. These things are, uh, become interesting to us on the basis of, uh, you know, they pique our interest. Or we start to uh, interact with some of the things that we are passionate about. And we like to see how people interact with us around those same passions, those things that we are interested in. And perhaps we're receiving, uh, you know, we become very valuable to others in that sort of uh, interest or passion or field or hobby. But it's exactly what Peter is getting at here. He says that there are human passions. There are many things that we are pulling, are being pulled uh, in these many different directions by these many passions. For some of us, those things are hobbies. For some of us, those things are, you know, uh, school and grades. It's your academic career. It could be promotions at work or trying to make a certain amount of money, you know, trying to get to uh, have a, a bank account of a certain size, hoping to uh, have financial security or safety. It could be health. It could be any number of things, but there are these things that, that pull at us. And a lot of times, these things aren't even bad things. They can be good things, but we turn them into ultimate things, and then they become human passions. They become things that we become so focused on that they turn into, uh, you know, these sorts of gods that we end up serving. And here, Peter says, there's, there's a number of different things that pull at you. But by contrast, what he says is this. We are no longer... To, to live for human passions, but for the will of God. So the positive thing we are to do to participate in is to live for the will of God, right? Will, singular, not plural, singular, the will of God. The one thing that God wants us to do. The one thing that God desires is what we are pursuing. You can be pulled in a bunch of different directions by human passions, but we are to have this singular focus. The will of God. We should arm ourselves, Peter tells us, with this intention to suffer, this preparation in our hearts to have the mind of Christ, as Christ decided that he would obey the Father in all things. And he says here that we ought to have that same mind where we are seeking to arm ourselves to obey Jesus, carrying out his will, fulfilling his desires in place of the human passions that 
really ruled our lives before we met Jesus. Before we met Jesus, there were plenty of things that we wanted to do and liked to do and were controlled by. And as we begin to walk with Christ more, those desires are still there, and we are in the process of continually submitting them to Jesus. We're in the process of continually giving those to him so that he might work in our hearts and remove them so that we begin to desire the things that he desires. And so we ought to live according to God's will and turn away from a life of sin. He goes on in verse 3 and now begins to give us some examples here. Some things that uh, contrasted with their, their lives. For the time is past, for, for the time, excuse me, that is past, that's already gone by, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So now as we come to verse 3, what Peter says is this. There are human passions, there's God's will, and now you, he says that there are also these desires that the Gentiles have. Those people that you're living among, they have desires that they're trying to participate in. And he says this, you've already done that. You've already participated in these things in the past, and it's enough. It's done. You don't need to go back and participate in those things. They don't need to be a draw on your life. You've already spent time in your life carrying out this will of the Gentiles. And so now it is time to obey, to follow the will of God. We have new desires as Christians. He gives this list, which really is a summary of sexual sin, drinking, parties, which were super common in the, in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, not like anything's changed very much. This is pretty much similar uh, to what's happening here. But this, uh, this sort of description of those times and the people that they were living among is really meant to characterize the culture, the things that they're facing, the hardships that they're facing. These people, uh, Peter says, they lived this immoral life before their conversion. They were serving these desires. They were serving uh, these passions. And he says this in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're surprised when the Christians go out among those who are not Christians, when they are with unbelievers, and you do not join in with the same activities. It is meant to draw a contrast that you have changed your life, that you have gone from serving the passions of the Gentiles, that you've gone from participating in these sorts of activities to now having a singular focus, the will of God. We're reminded by Peter's emphasis here of his words in which he opens the book, that we are, as Christians, sojourners and exiles. 
We no longer fit. We don't belong. Because we've changed our thinking. We've changed our desires. We've moved on. We don't share the same values. We don't share the same aspirations. We don't share uh, the same uh, things that the culture wants to emphasize. We We just don't fit in to the surrounding culture, the surrounding fabric, uh, you know, that society is really trying to, uh, to fit us into. We just don't have a place. And so, when we live in such a way where we are painfully out of place, how does society respond? How does the culture respond? Well, Peter says what, ex- what happens is that they malign you. They come against you. They bring oppression and persecution. You say, how come you're not like us? Why don't you want to champion the same ideas that we want? Why don't you want to get behind the same direction that we're all headed in? They want you to agree with them on the same things. Peter says this is just what we're going to experience. The result of not fitting in is that we will have this persecution, this suffering. We will be maligned and reviled. Just simply by not participating in the normal cultural activities of the day. This is what Peter's readers were dealing with. They were in this area. They weren't participating in the normal, run-of-the-mill Greco-Roman lifestyle, the culture there. And to be truthful, they could not participate because the time that they were living in and the culture that they were living in, idolatry was completely woven into the life uh, of the Roman. It was completely woven into it. The gods that they worshipped were woven into the government and society and culture. The emperor was exalted as a god. There were, uh, you know, frequent public festivals where they would you know, have these services of worship and they would be venerating these uh, Roman gods. They would be offering sacrifices and uh, many different opportunities for the, um, the really cultural, religious cultural aspect of the Roman culture to, to be injected into daily life. And so these Christians would often stand out because they wouldn't be able to participate in the same festivals or the same meals or be able to uh, go and be a part of, you know, even civic uh, level ceremonies because the emperor would be worshipped as, as a god. And it was uh, considered, you know, if, if you participated in these things, you were considered a good citizen. You were considered a good citizen if you would go and you would participate in these things. And so Christians, you know, they began to be pushed to the outside because they were not able to participate. And so they would begin to become uh, social outcasts. They would begin to be persecuted because they are seen as standing against the emperor. And so, of course, they're not going to fit in. Of course, they're going to be maligned and reviled and judged. But Peter doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there 
he doesn't end on that note. He instead brings context, and he reminds Christians that although they are being judged, although they are being reviled, they uh, will not have this judgment as the final word. But instead, there is a greater judge. Look at verse 5. He says, But they, speaking of those who malign them, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so these unbelievers in Peter's time, perhaps even in our time here, they are living the way that they want to live. They are the captain of their own souls. They are the Lord of their own lives. They're enjoying life as they desire to, and they are exalting themselves. But Peter says they will be held accountable. They will be called to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He reminds us here that there is a greater judge, that God will be the one who judges on the last day. And he uses this, this language, this legal language that you would find in a courtroom to give an account. That they will have to give testimony at this final judgment. And what he says here is that they will have to give remarks, to give reasons, to justify themselves. And what we've seen through Peter's words in the totality of the book is that no man will be able to justify himself on the last day. No person will be able to validate their existence to make themselves good enough or valuable enough or lovely enough. But it's only through the work of Christ, through His finished work, through His righteous life, His perfect death, His atonement, His resurrection, that we have life when we trust in Him for salvation and when we receive His cleansing blood, it is then that when the judge looks upon us, God sees the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us from every spot, every blemish, and makes us whiter than snow. Not because of what we've done but because of what Christ has done. And so Peter reminds us, he says, don't give in to temptation. Don't give in to temptation. Don't even think about quitting, because even on that last day, Christ will stand with you. Don't give up now, so that way these People who are maligning you will stop and they'll stand with you. He says it's better to have Christ stand with you. And then he ends here with verse 6, which is worded a little bit curiously, but it's actually pretty straightforward. He says this in verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
kind of sounds super confusing here, and if you read it, you're like, oh, that's really weird. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, you can't, like, after you're dead, have the gospel preached to you, and then decide you're going to make, like, that then you're going to follow Jesus. And, you know, I can see how it's easy to get confused here, because just in the passage before this, we just talked about how Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So you're like, oh, maybe that's what actually happened there. It's it's really easy to get confused with uh, kind of Peter's flow here. But when Peter says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, he's writing here to give this apologetic. He's writing here to give this defense for Christians, he's giving you some ammo in your pocket to have when you experience hardship and difficulty when you are maligned. He's writing here to give this to you. Because what he's doing here is he's anticipating what those on the outside will say to you. If, if you're pers- uh, someone who's not a Christian... And you're going around telling people, like, if you trust in Christ for salvation, then you're going to have everlasting life. And, you know, he's going to give you this abundant life and there's going to be fullness and richness. If you're not a Christian, you're going to be like, well, how come, like, all those people are dead and how come their lives are horrible? Like, that's, that's what he, the question he's kind of anticipating here. And so he says, here's, a, here's an objection that you're going to experience from unbelievers. That they're going to say, how come these guys are dead? I thought you said, like, there's going to be, like, this everlasting life and, like, all these things. He says, if you're speaking of, uh, or he's wanting us to understand, like, if people are bringing this objection, like, you're talking about the return of Christ and, like, all this. Why are these people dying like the rest of us? You guys don't seem any different. But Peter comes back and he says this. Those who are dead now... They have been judged in the flesh in the same way that people are judged. He's like, everyone's going to experience the same judgment. Everyone's going to experience it. And those people who were dead, they were judged in the same way that you unbelievers will also be judged. But because the gospel was preached to them, those who were dead, while they were alive... Because the gospel was preached to them while they were alive, and they responded to it. Because they heard the truth of the gospel, they responded to the truth of the gospel, they trusted in Christ for salvation, they are now alive in the Spirit, in the same way that God has made Christ alive in the Spirit. In the same way that God has resurrected Christ, you will also be made alive. And so even though Peter's saying from the human perspective, it seems like if you're a Christian, you don't get any benefits from your faith since you die. Everyone experiences this same uh, thing. From God's perspective, they are being made alive according to the Spirit. And so no one's being preached to while they're dead. They're dead and they were already preached to. But because they trusted in Christ for salvation, like they actually uh, are alive. And so Peter, what he's simply getting at here is this. When you start to draw the comparisons between the world and being like, look, like they die, we die, like, you know, it seems like we're all headed for the same fate. Like maybe we should just give up and just go back to living in these Gentile ways, these, serving our human passions. 
What Peter's getting at here to finish up this kind of theological sidebar that he's getting at, he's wanting his uh, hearers to understand this. That even if you die physically, death is not the last word. Death is not the final blow. Because the resurrection awaits those who've trusted in Christ for salvation. Right? He's just made this statement God is ready to give an account, or God, or God is going to judge those, and all will have to give an account to him. Those who are living and those who are the dead. Everyone must give an account. And so he says here, don't just think that you're going to die and like that's going to be the end of it. Keep in mind, have that focus that there will be an account that you have to give, a testimony that you have to give. So don't give up, he says. Reminding us that we ought to be faithful to steward well over the grace that God has given us. We've got to have the discipline to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow Jesus. This is what he's getting at, simply. That every day we have to decide that we are going to fight. That we are going to go to war with our flesh, with the enemy. We have to be prepared. And so arm yourselves. Take up arms. Arm yourselves, as Peter tells us, with this same way of thinking. The way of thinking that was in Christ that we are going to obey God in the midst of our hardships, difficulties, suffering, and that we are determined, absolutely determined, that God will be glorified through our lives every day. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful, so thankful that you have given us this pattern of suffering, that you have gone before us, that you have showed us, Lord, not just your love for us through the way that you've suffered, but you've given us a way that we can continue to glorify you. Through our suffering, where we want to obey you in every way. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to deny ourselves to take up our cross, to follow you. Lord, we want to commit. We want to commit to knowing you in your death and in your resurrection. So remind us to put on the full armor that you have entrusted us with. Remind us, Lord, that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to live for your glory. Lord, we need you to work in our lives. And so we commit ourselves to you. Change us, transform us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.